All right, welcome. Uh, to start, I thought I'd just uh, ask you, if you don't mind, to please uh, turn your phones onto silent. But please also feel free to record us, take photos of us, tweet about us. If you could just use the hashtag LSE Festival. Uh, this, uh, this event's being recorded. Uh, we have a podcast that you can access via the forum's website, um, also via iTunes. So please also recognize that when the audience question periods come, uh, those questions are also recorded. So you'll have to please wait until the roving mic comes around to you. Make sure to speak into the roving mic. So uh, welcome to the Forum for European Philosophy. Today's forum is about the evolution of altruism. And quite simply, animals and also humans help each other. But why would they do that in a survival of the fittest environment where it's sort of tooth and claw, every animal for themselves? Here uh, to help us get to the bottom of this, we have Dr. Jonathan Birch. He's an assistant professor at the London School of Economics. He's also the author of the new book, Philosophy of Social Evolution through Oxford University Press. If you'd like to follow up on the issues that come up in this discussion, this is an excellent starting place. Uh, we also have with us uh, Dr. Hannah Rubin. She is a philosopher of biology and uh, a postdoctoral researcher in theoretical philosophy at the University of Groningen. And finally, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Heike Hilantera, who is a biologist and a group leader at the Center for Excellence in Biological Interactions at the University of Helsinki. Uh, now, the Forum for European Philosophy, it's a nonprofit organization. We run these events thanks to the very kind donations of people like you, people like our listeners. So if you would like to make a donation and continue these wonderful podcasts, uh, please visit the website. You can find the donate button there. So let's launch off. We'll begin with a few comments uh, by Dr. Jonathan Birch on uh, what is <laughs> the philosophy of uh, altruism. What are we talking about? Yeah, what are we talking about, John? Uh, yeah, thanks very much, Brian, and thanks, everyone, for coming. Uh, yes, we tend to think of evolution, particularly evolution by natural selection, as being this struggle for existence, you know, survival of the fittest, a kind of war of all against all, nature red in tooth and claw. And yet, in some sense, that can't be the whole story, because when we look around us in the natural world, that's not all we see. You know, we see a lot of selfish behavior. We see a lot of aggression. We see a lot of animals uh, protecting their own interests. But we also see a lot of apparent cooperation. And in some cases, you know, behavior that is apparently just extremely altruistic, that it is kind of extreme acts of self-sacrifice. Um, social insects, particularly ants and bees, are perhaps the best-known examples. There's, I mean, some of Hakey's work, for, for instance, on... Uh, on ants, give some fantastic examples. Where there's a species of ants in, in Brazil, where you know, in, in all ant societies, you have the workers and the queen, and the workers are dedicating their lives to the raising of the queen's larvae. But these ants in Brazil take this to extremes, you know, because every night, some ants have to seal the nest so that the nest is protected for the night from predators, and they have to seal it from the outside. So these ants seal the nest from the outside, and then they're going to die overnight. They're, they're not going to survive to the next day. But they've, to all appearances, they've done this so that the rest of the colony can survive. You know, and then there are some ants that just spend their entire lives as basically living honeypots, just hanging, hanging off the, uh, the roof of the nest, storing food for the, for the rest of the ants. Um, but it's not just ants. Um, some of my favorite examples are in 
microorganisms, organisms too small for the eye to see. The cover of my book is a nice photo by a biologist called Scott Solomon at Rice University of a social amoeba. Uh, amoebas called uh, Dictyostelium discoidium. And in each one of these little orbs you can see on the, on the cover of the book, there are tens of thousands of these little amoebas aggregating. So for most of their lives, these amoebas are just single-celled organisms living in the soil, doing amoeba-y sort of things. And then, you know, when, when food gets scarce, when the going gets tough, they sense how many other amoebas there are in the soil around them. And if there's a critical number, they all get together and aggregate. They aggregate into a kind of mobile slug-like thing called a pseudoplasmodium or, or a grex that kind of moves along as one in the direction of, of heat and light. And then when they get to a suitable place, they do this. They form these fruiting bodies where about 20% of the cells die. 20% of the amoebas die, and they form the stalk. They're forming a dead stalk so that the other 80% can uh, work their way up to the top. And when they're at the top, they can release spores um, to sort of escape the tough conditions they endured in their own lives. So it's almost irresistible, even though these are just amoebas, you know, or just ants, just bees, it's almost completely irresistible to think of this as a kind of altruism, a kind of self-sacrifice. Um, so it's not just humans, uh, it's, it's not just ants and bees even. This is a very widespread phenomenon in the natural world that just cries out for explanation. Uh, Jonathan, uh, I have a personal question for you. Uh, I know you have a little boy. Are you the type of ant that would seal off the nest, or would you be the one that stays inside? And if you would seal it off, why would you do that? You mean how altruistic am I personally? Yeah. <laughs> or, or organisms more generally. I mean, why do they do these things? None, none of us really know, do we, unless, uh, unless we're put into that sort of situation. It, we, we think of... Now, there's a lot of suggestive parallels between human altruism and altruism in the natural world. Right? I mean, if you think of um, Captain Oates and the expedition to the Antarctic saying, I'm going out now, I may be some time, sort of... Realizing his own death was nigh, sacrificing himself, going outside the tent so that the rest of the expedition could carry on. Um, ants do something very similar. Right? The, the, uh, ants that are diseased, that are very ill, the, the ants will leave the nest so that they minimize the risk of transmitting the disease to the, to the other ants. Um, but in the ants, this behavior is kind of programmed, presumably. It's sort of, in some sense, in the genes... In humans, it's not. In humans, it's an incredibly complicated psychological phenomenon that is not simply genetically determined. Um, and in a way, I think, because it's not determined by our genes, we can't, in a way, we can't really know exactly how altruistic we are until we find ourselves in a situation that calls for it. Have either of you found yourself in a situation where you were the sealing-off ant? <laughs> I can't say I have. Not yet, no. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be dead, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Fair, enough. Fair, enough. Fair enough. Thankfully, no. Um, yeah, so, I mean, J.B.S. Haldane, the Confucius geneticist, great at coming up with really vivid examples to illustrate these kind of dilemmas. Right? And he, there's a sort of story about him in, in the pub with his graduate student, John Maynard Smith. And John Maynard Smith sort of asked him, uh, you know, suppose, suppose you're uh, looking out over a, a river and you see a, 
a, a drowning person in the river? You know, what, when would it be in your... You know, would, would you jump into the river or not to save them? And Haldane was, was a geneticist. He was thinking about when it would be in his genetic interests to jump in and save the person drowning in the river. And he said, I'd do it if it were two brothers or eight cousins. <laughs> um, so in a way, yes, I mean, <laughs> he went on to, to sort of point out that, of course, we don't really make those calculations. Right? The, the, the evolution of altruism is not about what calculations the individual makes. It's sort of about what the evolutionary processes are that might favour favor the kind of general dispositions, you know, to be, to be altruistic in that kind of situation. So, I mean, you, you, you suggested that there are some interesting similarities then between ants and humans, but also some crucial differences between ants and humans. Do any of, do any of you, uh, right, in general, but also in terms of how they calculate their altruistic behavior, uh, do any of you have any thoughts on, on what exactly those differences amount to? Well, I mean, certainly in social insects, uh, the cooperation is always between genetic relatives. Right? So the workers are all sisters, um, basically, all raising the larvae of the queen, who's their, their mother. Uh, and that, that genetic relatedness, that fact that they're descended from the same parent, that they're genetically close kin, not, not always that close, there's not always just one queen, but, but they're always related to some degree, that seems to be really crucial in sustaining their, their altruism. When we look to humans, of course we face a puzzle, because altruism in humans is not always directed at close genetic relatives, despite Haldane's quip. So you're telling me if I, took, if I took an ant from a different nest and I asked it to go do the sealing off behavior, it, it, it would not be interested in this. Have you, no... have you tried this? <laughs> we, 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 didn't, we didn't try it, but, but my, my guess is that it, it wouldn't work. Ants, ants are the altruism of ants. It, it is always, like Jonathan said, it's always family-based, and they use very... They don't do mental calculations of who is likely to be a brother or a sister or a cousin, but they, they rely on very crude rules of thumb that this individual smells like my nestmates. I'm on my home territory. My altruism is now targeted towards kin. They, they don't... They have very rough behavioral rules that on average guarantee that the altruism goes to, goes to genetically similar individuals. There are exceptions. There are, there are cheaters, there are parasites that invade colonies and take advantage of the crude recognition mechanisms and like, behave like cuckoos and enter, <laughs> enter the nest of another ant species or, or a specific nest. But these are, these are sort of the altruistic rules of thumb misfiring. And, and if, there's a, if there's a good working system in nature, it's also likely that somebody is going to find a way to exploit that system as a parasite, and ants, ants do that as well. They are not altruists towards ants in the next mound. They are only altruists yeah. in, a, in a very limited So it's limited parochial setting. in a way. It's, 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 within it's, the it's family. Extremely, extremely parochial, yeah. So yeah. that's a... Yeah. I was going to say, even in humans, there's... Yes, we're altruistic towards random people that we've never met and we'll never see again, but there is still some sort of calculation based on kinship. If your brother loses his job, you're more likely mm. to then say, oh, come live with me for a while. I don't care if, mm. you know, it's inconvenient to me. But if a random stranger, you know, you're not going to let that random stranger into your house to live with you just 
out of some feeling of altruist, altruism towards them. And that's the kind of kernel of truth in Haldane's quip, right? That mm-hmm. we, we don't really calculate uh, two brothers or eight cousins, but we do tend to favour you know, the, the people to whom we're most strongly uh, altruistic and supportive do tend to be our close kin. Mm-hmm. <coughs> but is it... And when you mentioned the random stranger... I'm worried that the random stranger is going to steal my stuff, that I don't know the person. There's a sort of <laughs> okay. negative you know, possibility associated with yeah, the Yeah, I visit. guess letting a random stranger into your house isn't the, the best example. But, um, but you think also all else being equal, if it were somebody that I were confident that it would be no more or less annoying than my, my cousin. Yeah, you're more <laughs> likely to help your cousin all else. Being... Still more likely to help my cousin. It's wonderful that it works at all, isn't it, human cooperation? It's wonderful that Airbnb works, for example. <laughs> People do let strangers into their house uh, in return well, that's for... that's for money, not interest. Yeah, and I, I prefer that they have five-star rating myself. You can be risky or not risky when you take on these Airbnbs. It's bringing out the importance of reputation in humans. Right? Mm. Well, mm. Uh, not in the ants, but in the, in the humans, cooperation between individuals who are not genetic relatives is crucially sustained by reputational consequences. You, know, you, you stand to benefit by cultivating a good reputation, and you stand to lose by doing something that will, will injure your reputation. Yeah, and then it's not altruism in the, in the narrow strict and the strict sense. sense. It's more like cooperation based on mutual, yeah. mutual benefits, either direct reciprocal mutual benefits or something that occurs through reputation yeah. effects and of course compared to the altruism by ants who are sacrificing all of their personal reproduction they, they, I mean that's the from an evolutionary biologist that's the ultimate ultimate self-sacrifice that you are not you are not reproducing at all the the examples of human altruism are really really that extreme so that's that's from an ant biologist that's the that's the main that's the main difference in in the altruism it's in ant societies it's obligate it's non-negotiable and it's extreme so it's and genetic relatedness is is crucial in in allowing that because it's you're helping your your genes persist into the future by sacrificing your own reproduction to help that of the queen yeah, and, and also, I mean, like, of course, when we think about altruism in social insects, the first examples that come to mind are these extreme ones that a honeybee worker that stings you mm. is going to be ripped apart because the stings is, sting stays in your on your skin and the worker will, will die due to that or the ants that freeze to death after they seal their colony, colony entrances. But, of course, I mean, any honeybee worker or an ant worker is already an extreme altruist, even if they don't mm. do this extreme self-sacrifice by killing themselves, because they have already born as individuals who are never going to reproduce. So they are any any social insect worker is already an extreme altruist. So mm. it's whether that whether they are then going to commit suicide to help the colonies is then that's a very small addition to the <laughs> altruistic altruistic behavior. They are all evolutionary dead ends. For, for their personal reproduction already. So, Well, why don't we open up the forum to a few questions from uh, the audience. Uh, there's a roving mic that's going around, but so if you'd like to ask a question or raise a comment, uh, go ahead and please put your hand up now. Uh, all right, um, we'll start with the gentleman here in the bottom right. I, I thought it was um, interesting that you talked about reputation and, and you know, got, you have 
we're prone to gossip. We're prone to telling stories about each other or whatever. So I was I'm wondering, um, you know, various mechanisms have been proposed for evolution of altruism, and you want to have some way of directing altruism, altruistic acts towards other altruism. And one method that's been proposed is a green beard effect, where you have, you know, you can recognize an altruist and you act towards an altruist by some external marker. How much can um, you see uh, reputation as a green beard effect in terms of, in, of directing altruism, altruistic acts towards other altruists? Right. Thanks. Of course, it depends how exactly you define green beard effect. I'll just, uh, I mean, I, lo- I love the term, right? This is a term from Richard Dawkins, based on some comments by, by Bill Hamilton, that Dawkins is trying to imagine situations in which altruism might evolve without close uh, sort of family relations. And he's thinking, well, suppose there was a, a gene that did the following three things. First, it causes you to grow a green beard. Um, secondly, it causes you to go and seek out other individuals who have green beards. And thirdly, it causes you to behave altruistically towards those other individuals with green beards. Um, and Dawkins asks, well, could that trait spread, even if the people with green beards were not actually close family members. And he said, yes, it could spread, because what it has is that crucial condition for the evolution of altruism, which is that the benefits of conferred by that trait are falling differentially on other individuals who have that trait. So it's increasing the frequency in future populations of that green beard trait, because it's people with green beards who get the benefits. Um, and yes, so the question is, to what extent is reputation a bit like that? Well, of course, it is, it is a bit like that, but not entirely like that, um, because it's not... Reputation is not necessarily a, a, a marker of your, your genes. It's a, rec- kind of based, a record of your past behavior. And so, in a way, it's within your control to a greater extent than your, than your genes are. Right? You can't really control which individuals resemble you genetically, but you can, to some extent, control your reputation... Uh, through your own actions. So in a way, you can see the benefits of reputation as sort of flowing, flowing directly to you. They're a kind of direct fitness effect a, a, and a result of your own behavior over the long term, um, which is not necessarily present in, in the Greenbeard effects. But it's a fantastic example. And they exist in ants, right? There are some examples of, of green beard. Not literal green beards. No, no, <laughs> not, literal, not, not literally, but there are, there are examples of, of ant colonies. Uh, I guess this is more, more an example of uh, not behaving altruistically towards other green beards, but, uh, but uh, attacking the individuals who don't carry the green beard. So it's a more of a negative example that there are, there are some genetic loci where, where ant colonies seem to be able to exclude individuals, even if they would be kin otherwise across the whole genome. They, they seem to be attacking individuals who don't carry a particular allele at a particular particular low science. Yes, it's based on smell, is it? The, the marker is on e- smell. Yeah, so, so this, I think it's quite a large chunk of the genome that is actually associated with this, with this marker, but it's, it's certain that odors play a large role and there are, so there are, some, there are genes coding for, coding, for, coding for odors in that genomic region. And, of course, that's, that's how ants... If there's anything special that ants do, it's very likely that odors are playing a role because that's 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 the world they they live in. They they are functioning largely based on based on smell, of course. Yeah. So the important difference, really, between green beards and reputation is that you can have the green beard without being an altruist, 
but you can't really get a reputation for being an altruist without being an altruist. So they're quite similar in one sense, but they're also quite dissimilar in another sense. And I mean, if there's some kind of a signal of reputation, there is a risk that some individuals would try to fake that signal of reputation. Similarly, that the Greenbeard system is vulnerable to this. Yeah, so if you can get a reputation for being an altruist somehow without being an altruist, yet... I wouldn't really call that a reputation-based evolution yeah, of yeah. altruism. But, yeah, yeah. But, but you could have a sort of physical marker as a human, mm-hmm. sort of like, that becomes culturally associated maybe with being an altruist, and then that's mm-hmm. then a sign that you're an altruist. Yeah, and then that's, like that. that's similarly vulnerable than the Greenbeard mm-hmm. system. The Greenbeard systems are thought to be rare in nature because they they can be... Uh, they can be beat by by individuals who carry the green beard, but are not. Got this vulnerability to subversion, like by um, yeah, yeah. sometimes the people in this area call them false beards. Oh, yeah, that's, like. yeah, yeah, false exactly. beards, people yeah. who fake the signal, so fake the smell. Yeah, yeah. And in the same way, if there's a way to fake your reputation mm. or to, to get it dishonestly, yeah, yeah. individuals can gain sort from of that. pretend I'm going to donate to charity, but don't actually ever give the money or something like that. <laughs> I mean, that happens all the time. <laughs> this is a major problem. Uh, people who you take to be disingenuous. Uh, and I suppose I, I, I'd be curious to know what you think. Uh, how much of human apparent altruistic behavior is really the sort of calculated reputational behavior where they're trying to build up social credit? Uh, but, you know, are they, are they ever really truly altruistic? I mean... It's hard to tell how much. I mean, there's certainly cases where you know it's not reputation-based. I mean, there's been experiments putting people in labs where they're just sitting at computers. They don't know who they're interacting with, and so there's no sort of expectation that they're going to build any reputation from giving up some of their earnings from the experiment for the other person. Mm -hmm. Yet people do give up some money and give it to other people. Um, So one classic example is uh, what's called the dictator game um, in game theory. So basically you give a person in a laboratory some amount of money, like $10 or something, and they just, they're interacting with another person at another computer, they don't know who it is, and they're told you can offer some distribution of this money. You could keep nine and give them one, keep eight and give them two or something like that. And people, I mean, they don't, you know, give everything to the other person, but oftentimes they offer a fairly equal split of the money. Um, Most people give at least something to the other person, and there's no sort of explanation of that except for that they care about the other person. They care about uh, being altruistic, even towards perfect strangers. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned earlier the role of Hamilton's thinking in, uh, in these sorts of issues. Did you want to comment on that? Yes, of course, because it's the LSE Festival. Right? Uh, W.D. Hamilton, Bill Hamilton, uh, I think one of LSE's most illustrious alumni, um, rarely even remembered as an alumnus, because I think he basically hated it. <laughs> um, he was here as a graduate student in the early 60s. He was enrolled in the Department of Sociology. His first published paper on the evolution of altruistic behavior has the LSE affiliation, but he never used it again. Um, the, the, he never admitted to being at LSE. Uh, the, the reason for that is that 
Um, he submitted a paper to Nature that subsequently, when published in a different journal, one of the most influential papers ever written in evolutionary theory, but it was desk rejected by Nature. And he heard sort of through the grapevine that it had been desk rejected because someone just looked at the cover page and it said Department of Sociology, LSE, and they said, oh, we don't publish sociology. Um, So so he was also jointly registered at at UCL at the Galton Laboratory. Um, But according to his biographer, Alika Segerstrahl, he didn't really like that either. He, he, He was the sort of guy who was very solitary and worked on buses and in uh, Waterloo Station. It was one of his favourite places <laughs> to work. But in the, this was all in the early 60s. The work he was doing just completely changed the way we think about uh, the evolution of altruism and social behaviour. And he basically took that thought that was expressed in that quip from Haldane about two brothers or eight cousins. Uh, Hamilton disputed whether that quip ever really happened. Um, it was a kind of battle over priority, but took the basic idea, that basic sort of kernel of insight that we have this evolutionary incentive to help our relatives and used it as the basis for a mathematically rigorous, brilliant theory called inclusive fitness theory that, you know, even today for, for insect researchers and people working on humans, it continues to shape the way we think about how social behaviour evolves. We think of animals as being trying to maximise their inclusive fitness, where this is a kind of measure of how much your behaviour is getting your genes represented in future populations. Um, do you think do ants maximise their inclusive fitness? I mean, my my view is that if they, I mean, of course, evolution doesn't maximise things in an absolute yeah. absolute sense evolution doesn't doesn't evolution bring, doesn't bring have a goal perf- it doesn't bring perfection yeah. but to the extent that that uh, natural selection on and societies maximizes anything then inclusive fitness is is very close to to what is being being maximized at, uh, at least but that shouldn't be uh, seen as saying that evolution is is producing perfection that's not that's not the case of course but uh, Heike, why don't you uh, lead us off with a few comments on how uh, the evolution of altruism works more broadly in your research and in, and in ants in particular? So, so yeah, of course, the, the, for us, the bottom bottom line is that is that relatedness is the key to altruism. Genetic genetic uh, similarity, the Greenberg mechanisms, is another way to produce produce relatedness on a small part of the genome, but in ants. Another social insects, social wasps, honeybees, termites. Altruism is is always family based. So the so social insects have of course evolved from uh, solitary insects. The evolutionary ancestor, in the case of ants, somewhere 100 million years back, was a was a solitary wasp. <laughs> First stages of worker-like behavior. In all cases, when we can sort of re- reconstruct the evolutionary scenarios based on the based on the current uh, phylogenies, it's always daughters uh, staying at home to help their mother reproduce. It's not random individuals coming together, one becoming a worker and the other one becoming the queen. It's always a daughter staying at home to help the mother. Uh, in termites' cases, it's both sons and daughters, but 
but wasps and bees and, and ants, it's always there. The, the workers are always females, and the males play a very, very small role in the, in the, in the colony altogether. So that's, that's sort of the insight number one from inclusive fitness logic, that cooperation and altruism is family-based. But then I think what, what brought me into studying ants is the sort of other side that, okay, we have family-based societies where cooperation is, is the force holding, holding the group together, but these are not clonal groups. Individuals are not genetically identical to each other. There's varying degrees of relatedness there, and that that creates uh, conflicts within the colonies as well. So if we can, if we look at the genetic structure of an ant nest or a honeybee nest, we can also predict that okay, the cooperation shouldn't be perfect. Uh, we 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 can predict that. Certain class of individuals should prefer another class of individuals over the third class because they are genetically more similar to them. And in, in many cases, I think those are what people have seen as one of the major triumphs of the inclusive fitness logic, that these kind of conflicts within societies are something that nobody would have predicted without, without the, the inclusive fitness insights that the genetic similarity between individuals is, is very important. So we can, we can observe and larvae eating eggs that are that are their more or less distant or close close relatives we can predict that in species that have certain kind of family structures in the nests this kind of selfish behavior and conflict should be more prominent we have ant workers killing their brothers in order to feed these brothers to their sisters because they are genetically more similar to the to the sisters so that's uh, that's a uh, that's, I think, what, what, what got me interested in ant research in the, in the first place when I was doing my, doing my, my undergrads in the, in the late 90s. This was re- really a hot topic in, in the social insect world, these, these kin, kin conflicts. And I think that's, that's, that's the other side of inclusive fitness, which I think is, is really... Conflict really, as well as cooperation. Yeah, that you, can, you predict both, and they are always, you know... I just find the, the parallels with the cells of our own bodies quite interesting. As Hamilton himself pointed this out, right? That you can think of a social insect colony as almost like a kind of cohesive, single, superorganism sort of thing. When you think about it that way, you start to think, well, hang on, I, I can do the reverse of that. I can think about an organism like, you know, you or me, humans, and, or an individual ant made up of countless billions of cells and think, hang on, that organism is a kind of social unit and, and not, moreover, a social unit that is made up of close relatives. The cells in your body are close relatives of each other through their common descent from a single fertilised egg. Yeah, and I think that's the, the, sort of the idea of, of an ant colony as an organism rather than a collection of organisms mm. that that idea is is older than inclusive fitness theory. Yeah. That that idea goes back to yeah. William Morton Wheeler and and Julian Huxley also wrote about wrote about how how an ant colony actually is an individual rather than a collection of individuals, making exactly this this comparison that we have the queen, that is the germline of the colony, superorganism, and we have the workers that are the somatic cells of the of the colony organism and but they of course they didn't put this in <laughs> into an 
inclusive yeah. fitness or relatedness framework. They recognize that them being families is is important, but they didn't talk about genetic genetic relatedness. And then now, of course, in the in the in the last twenty years, this idea of of evolution being a series of increases in like hierarchical complexity, like how multicellular life evolved from unicellular ancestors and how so insect societies evolved from solitary insects and and this is of course where the sort of general value of inclusive fitness theory and relatedness thinking it's an important idea I argue for in the book really that you know, social evolution theory is, is not just a theory of cooperation it's not just a theory of altruism it's a theory of how new levels of organism come into existence right? that, And to me, that's one of the things that's always struck me as a, you know, a really profound thing about this theory, that it gives us this new perspective on what we are and why we exist. You know, because for the first few billions of years, right, life on Earth was single-celled life. Single-celled life was getting on absolutely fine. It's, it still is. The vast majority of life is still single-celled. Bacteria getting on with their business. They have no real need of being multicellular, you know. So you think that's kind of weird that there are these few freaks, you know, in the world of unicellular life. You occasionally come across this freakish thing that's like a mass of billions and billions of cells that are all cooperating with each other. What is that all about? And I think. Social social evolution theory and, and Hamilton's ideas are giving us fantastic insights into what that is all about. It is about cells that are typically clonal, highly related, descended from a single cell uh, fertilized egg, cooperating in a way that is stable because of the way they're close relatives. Hannah, I thought maybe you could comment on uh, the altruistic behavior in these particular freakish <laughs> <laughs> clumps of cells that we call humans. Uh. Well, us freakish humans, uh, we cooperate a lot. Um, yeah, so as we've already mentioned, um, humans are altruistic towards our kin, and so a lot of people think that that can be explained using Hamilton's ideas about kin selection. Um, but we're also altruistic towards people we don't know, and even in cases where we think there's no sort of direct benefit to ourselves, cases where there's no reputation to be gained. And so a lot of times when people talk about the evolution of human altruism, they're trying to explain the sort of widespread human altruism. Why are we altruistic towards perfect strangers, basically? Um, and so one thing you might think is, well, kin selection is so important to the rest of the biological world, can we use this explanation of kin selection to just explain all of this widespread human altruism? Um, which might seem a bit silly at first, but some people do argue that it can explain this widespread human altruism. And the idea is supposed to be something like, well, our altruistic preferences, our way of viewing other people evolved back at a time where we were mostly interacting with our with our family members. So we lived in small kin groups, and so when we interacted with people, we just interacted altruistically. And then biological evolution favored this. But once human groups started growing and we had more and more important interactions with people outside our immediate family members, the altruistic preferences just sort of stayed around. Um, so that's one way 
some people try to explain why we're just altruistic in general, although it's often sort of dismissed very quickly by other people uh, who refer to it as the big mistake hypothesis, um, possibly because they think the hypothesis itself is a big mistake, um, but also because it implies that all of our altruistic actions are just big mistakes. So they're just misfirings of our desire to help kin even though we're in a world where we no longer primarily interact with kids. It's about sort of coming to regard the wider community as of, the, of, of the country or, or the world as, as if they were family members yeah. when they're not. Yeah. Um, so this is often uh, dismissed uh, fairly quickly. I mean, so one of the things you can say is that, you know, other primates distinguish kin from non-kin when they're deciding who to cooperate mm-hmm. with, who to be altruistic towards. Another thing you can say is that we're perfectly capable of distinguishing kin from non-kin in other settings. Um, so things like incest aversion show us that we're pretty good from dis- at distinguishing kin from non-kin. Um, <laughs> um, Just as well. Yeah, so that's, that's a good thing. Um, so a lot of times, uh, instead of invoking sort of biological evolution to explain these widespread human Uh, altruistic preferences, people will talk about cultural evolution. And for cultural evolution, basically that just means there's a variety of different behaviors in groups of people, and then some of those behaviors are adopted more often than others. So when you're talking about the cultural evolution of altruism, you're trying to explain why altruistic behaviors are not genetically programmed, but why they're adopted by people living in groups of of yeah. other people. Um, so do a kind of an analogue of natural selection, sort of an analogue of yeah. Darwinian processes, but now they're happening not at the level of genes, but at the, at the cultural level, at, at the level of beliefs, ideas, yeah. skills, values. Yeah, so, um, and there's a lot of different ways that people can adopt, you know, different beliefs yeah. or different behaviours or different attitudes from people. It could be that, you know, Parents teach their children how to behave. They teach them to be nice to other people, and some people have more children than others, and so if people have more children than others and their children have have their same views, then you might think that's how a behavior can spread in a population. But that's not the only way, right, because we look around at other people and we see maybe some behaviors are more prevalent than others and we want to do what's the most popular thing, or we just learn from our peers, we want to behave like our friends, things like that. So there's a lot of different ways for behaviors to spread through cultural evolution. Um, I feel like these sort of key concepts we get from Hamilton for understanding social evolution in the, in the genetic case, they have their analogs too in the cultural mm-hmm. case, or at least that's, yeah. that's one thing I argue, that you can think of there being a kind of cultural relatedness as well as a kind of genetic relatedness, that just as our genes can be correlated if we're, if we're brothers or sisters, our beliefs and values can also be correlated because we've been you know, raised in the same community. And one, one possibility we're taking seriously, I think, is that human cooperation does tend to be differentially targeted at, at our cultural relatives, at, at people who are more likely than average to share the same beliefs and values as we do. Uh, we, it's we not have... just a big mistake. Oh, maybe not just a big mistake. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's giving us, uh, yeah, a, a sort of cultural evolution story is just saying there's, yeah. there's more to the story than just sort of kin selection going wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, why don't we take a few more questions from the audience? Uh, we'll take, um, let's see, the, the lady in the far back left to begin, and we'll do a couple of questions at once. So, so if you start uh, first, and then we'll pass the mic to another person, and then we'll, we'll proceed. I wasn't expecting to go first. So <laughs> um, I've been quite interested in the idea of ants um, kind of completely sacrificing their lives altruistically and it being a self-sacrificial, I will die to make my species succeed. Um, and that's not a way, like if somebody actually sacrificed their life in the human species to help someone else, that is a massive deal. That's really like, that must have been a really extreme example. And it's, it's quite rare. interesting. Yeah, it's hmm? much rarer. Yeah. Um, so it's quite interesting that, do you think perhaps, is it, it no longer about evolution, altruism in the human species and how none of us are really willing to sacrifice huge groups of humanity to help us. And now there's quite a lot of us and it's almost becoming self-destructive in there being like, no, we all help each other, all survive, um, to the point where there being so many of us that we've got a lot of problems with the overpopulations of humanity. And how do you think sometimes, this is quite like a, a little bit of a devil's advocate kind of question, do you think it's kind of crucial that there are groups of species that will sacrifice their selves and their lives as well to help us species survive you need to have groups like actually dying <laughs> help well, or do you think it's yeah. valuable in humanity for it to be just kind of to help each other out and be nice to each other i mean there certainly are cases where people will sacrifice <coughs> their lives for other people i mean you have people in the military you have firefighters risk their lives, policemen, things like that. But you're right that it is a sort of smaller subset of altruistic behavior in humans. And of course, they're not doing it for the sake of the species, but, but crucially, neither are the ants. Right? It's, it's not the... That kind of for the good of the species sort of argument turns out not to really work, because evolution doesn't really happen at the, at the species level in that way. It's not, not species competing with each other think about it this way, that the ant is doing it for its, uh, for its own close relatives. Mm-hmm. And it's doing it for the, for the queen. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so um, yeah. Un- unfortunately, evolution doesn't work to preserve the species. It's, uh, it's, uh, evolution is still always, to some extent, about competition within the species, even if, fi- we, even if we find amazing examples of cooperation and altruism, competition over whose genes or cultural traits will will be in the next generation that that competition will always always be there as as well so so the good of the species is not where evolution is it's absolutely is the going. case that social evolution is not always good for the species and can be very bad and it's entirely exactly. possible yeah. that you can have lots of groups internally really cooperative like these ants colonies uh, cooperating wonderfully with each other but they're conflict between each other, the conflict between groups is so destructive that it tears the species apart. Yeah, yeah and I mean this, this also goes, goes back, to, back to the early 60s and Bill, Bill Hamilton because at, at that time I think a lot of the evolutionary biology and population biology there was a lot of theories and ideas of how, how individuals are doing certain things to help the population and I think Hamilton's thinking was, was one of the main main ingredients in, in showing that, that that thinking doesn't hold up to evolutionary theory scrutiny. So I think that's, that's how... Yeah, so you do occasionally get these super colonies, right, where, where the nests have found a way to sort of overcome the, the conflict between them, and they're cooperating in these 
massive super colonies of many nests. You sort of think if we could be like that. that well, yeah, yeah that is that is that is uh, that's that's something I've been working a lot in the, in the recent years that we do have ant societies that seem to sort of defy this this inclusive fitness Hamiltonian logic of helping your close close relatives. Uh, individuals seem to be interacting with non-related individuals, but actually, usually in those cases as well, if we look far enough, there is going to be a border. There is going to be the next super conflict. There, there is going to be a territory and a conflict, and the cases where we don't find these uh, borders and, and conflicts seem to be something that has been caused by human. That these species have been. Uh, introduced by human action to, to novel environments and they are not probably at an evolutionary stable situation but they, we have we have interesting situations where this logic seems to seems to be shaky at least at the moment. It's one of the sad things I suppose about social evolution theory that there's always conflict somewhere. What you have is you know <laughs> selection between nests say can can end up really strongly giving a you know putting a premium on cooperating well within the nests. But at some level, you always get to a point at which there's some competition that is driving the, the evolution of the cooperation within a localised group or area. Yeah, so this is similar to how a lot of people think human altruism evolved as well, where you had competition between groups. There was extensive warfare and competition over scarce resources, and then you had groups where people were cooperating, behaving altruistically towards each other, and they sort of in a war, in a fight, or when there's limited resources, the group would be better at surviving than a group where people weren't willing to defend the other people in their group or share some of their food or, or things like that. It's one of the sort of paradoxes of uh, explaining human evolution in this way. Like Sam Bowles and Herbert Gintis make this kind of argument that human cooperation, we've become this incredibly cooperative species because of unbelievably intense, horrible warfare between human <laughs> groups throughout mm. the, the Pleistocene. There's always this sort of internal uh, kind of paradox almost of these mm. hypotheses that to get, to get the really strong uh, cooperation within groups, you have to put into the model really nasty, intense competition between groups. Uh, the next question was uh, the lady with glasses. Uh, there, yes, and then we'll follow that with somebody up here in the front. Thank yeah. you. It's a really interesting discussion. Um, I'm a clinician, I'm a doctor, so I think that is really big gap between ants and humans. And uh, <laughs> we sort of very conveniently of <laughs> skip the all other evolutional steps, uh, which can be quite complex. And I think that a lot of examples of altruism is seen between mother and child in mammals, for example, but it might be more difficult to reproduce artifact. So that was just a beginning. The question is, sometimes we can get idea about evolutional stages from physiology. So which parts of the brains are fired during the altruistic events? So it's not a logical decision, isn't it? It's sort of almost intuitive decision that must have fire dopamine, dopaminergic pathways because it makes us feel good, even if it is something that person sacrifices money or life or goes through hardship, it actually makes them feel really good. Uh, so the question is, do you have any clues from the 
physiology of the brain from functional MRIs, which parts of the brain are activated during altruistic uh, steps in humans to guide us development sort of in terms of human chronology development. Well, of course, I mean, none of us do fMRI scans, <laughs> but I think it's, um, to me, it seems an emotional thing. Right? I think there's some indication that these, you, you give people these anonymous games in, in, in the lab, and if they, if, they do it, if they do it once, they're more likely to cooperate than if they play it over and over again. There's a sense that if you do it enough times, if, you, if your emotional, intuitive responses end up being desensitized, switching off, and sort of cold reason takes over, people become more selfish. Yeah, yeah, so I don't know which part of the brain lights up because or anything the, like that. Because you but can it is... link that parts of the brain to the steps of human evolution. Yeah. So there are some parts of the brain that developed very long time ago and some are quite recent, like so the cortex. I'm sure there are, I know there are uh, laboratories that have the equipment to do that, I just don't know enough about brain studies to really report it's on a great It's a great debate, right? I think it's, it's not a question we've resolved, but this idea of... I mean, human evolution is, is characterized by, of course, a, a great expansion in our intelligence and our, our rational capabilities and, and, and the cortex, but also our emotional capabilities and our, our effective system um, and our ability to have these fast, intuitive uh, moral judgments... And you know, so you get these dual process theories of cooperation and of altruism and of moral judgment where we've got both processes going on at once. We've got the sort of slow calculation of what's, uh, what we should do and then you've got the fast, intuitive, emotional responses. And then it leaves room for you know, debate right, about which is, really, which is more altruistic. And I tend to think it's probably the emotionally driven judgments are more likely to be altruistic. More Something like a gut feeling. Yeah, gut yeah. feelings. And yeah. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that a lot of our altruistic behavior is not just based on emotion, but based on imitation. Um, so there have been experiments about uh, how often children will imitate uh, altruistic behavior. So they put them, they put them in like a little waiting area um, in one experiment, and they see someone playing like this bowling game. And if you like win that round on the bowling game, you get some sort of payment, and they watch this person play the bowling game, and when that person is p- putting their money into, like, a, a jar for donating to charity, the child who's playing the bowling game next is much more likely to then put their winnings in the jar donating to charity as well, um, instead of, like, keeping their money and buying candy with it or whatever. Um, <laughs> so it's a lot of emotion, but it's also a lot of imitation of other people's behavior. That was the second part of my question. I, I'm sorry, we, there were several questions, I'm afraid. We should probably move on to one more, but thank you very much for okay. that. Uh, thank you, thank you. So the, the comment for, for the listeners was the Max Planck Institute uh, for, for further... Uh, further information on neuroscience, sure. Uh, the gentleman here in the very front, thanks. Thank you very much. Um, in fact, uh, uh, I want to expand a little bit on this, um, on the initial comment and the previous question. Uh, we draw these analogies between human altruism and altruism and other species, especially in social insects. And something um, uh, bothers me about this sort of uh, contrast between the humans. Are we really talking about the same thing? Humans are conscious, we understand, we sacrifice, we lose our lives, 
we, we understand that we, when we do that, do, re, do really ants sacrifice themselves? There are mechanisms which they, de, these species developed to behave uh, in a particular way, but is it really an altruism? Are we talking about altruism here? Yes, you're wondering about the, the intentional language we, we inevitably fall into. Yes, we anthropo- in, a, in a way, what I'm saying yeah. is that we, by telling this story, we anthropomorphize these, these creatures and yes. think about them in this way. Yes, of course, there's, there's a danger of that. I think um, it's important to distinguish two ways in which the term altruism is used. Right? There's, a, there's an ordinary sense, and also used in psychology, where altruism is about motivation. And altruism is about acting in a way that is motivated by concern for others. And do humans ever do that? Well, I, I think so, uh, sometimes. Do ants do that? Well, that's a harder question. Probably not. They may well not have enough mentality for us to really intelligibly talk of them being motivated by concern for others. And when we look at the amoebas, I don't think they're really motivated by concern for others. Um, but that should be distinguished from biological altruism, right, where altruism has taken on a life of its own as, as a kind of technical term in biology, where in biology, altruism is about reproduction. You know, it's about doing something that seems to defy Darwinian logic because it impairs your own chances of, of reproducing in such a way as to increase the chances of reproducing of, of another organism. And do, do amoebas do that? Well, yes, yes, they do, and, and ants do that. So these notions come apart, and perhaps sometimes we're psychologically altruistic without being biological, biologically altruistic, as when we, we help our own children. Um, that's kind of helping our own direct reproductive success in the Darwinian sense, but it can still be psychologically altruistic. And also we can, we can sometimes be biologically... We can, we can sometimes be biologically altruistic without being psychologically altruistic, I think. If you imagine a, a soldier or something who goes into a war zone um, but is not motivated by concern for others but just by the desire for a paycheck or something like that. These notions can come apart in lots of ways. It makes me wonder about uh, the advantage of diversity, though. So it sounds like a lot of the advantage you get from altruistic behavior is then associated with people who are very, very similar to you in one way or another, either genetically or socially. But then, of course, there's some advantage to having some diversity in a species just to be more resistant to natural selective pressures. Does, can altruism work against you in this way, of making your colony you know, too unified? All the altruism is only working to, <laughs> to save the people that, uh, that, are, that are just like each other. Well, I, I think in, in, social insects, how, in social insect studies, how people, people see this is, is, of course, that if you have a... I mean, altruism is maximally selected for in a genetically uniform family setting. But a genetically uniform family setting is also a very good place for parasites and pathogens, for example, to, 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 to cause, uh, cause problems. But whether, whether this selection for increased genetic diversity through pathogen resistance is enough to, to make... To, to offset the, the costs that would come from perhaps perhaps uh, decreased selection for altruism, that, that's something I... It's a good question. Yeah. It's one of Hamilton's other big ideas. So that, I mean, my book is focusing on Hamilton's work on social behaviour and, and kin selection, but the other thing he's best known for is 
this hypothesis about the evolution of sex. Why does why, why do organisms reproduce sexually? That's kind of wasteful and weird. If you think of it from the point of view of a bacterium, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just, just splitting in half every 20 minutes. That's really, really quick, really efficient. Why would you reproduce sexually? In a way, all of the males are just completely wasted because they don't, they don't gestate a new organism. All they do is produce a tiny bit of DNA that fertilizes an egg. And Hamilton was thinking, why on earth does selection ever lead to sexual reproduction? And his answer was that it's crucial for disease resistance. It's crucial that the population has this churn of genetic diversity, genes being mixed up all the time, so that parasites and pathogens can't uh, just evolve to target uh, a particular set of genes so effectively that they just kill everyone. It would not have been my first intuition that the role of men is actually disease resistance. In... <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it must be a, a really... To, to offset the, the cost of having men around... You know, if you think of how many more offspring, think of how many more offspring could be produced if everyone was a woman. You know, the, the cost of having men around is huge in Darwinian terms. And there must be a huge benefit in the, in the form of genetic diversity. And, and, and that's also also a good good example of, of, of how why or how evolution doesn't doesn't favor what's good for the growth rate of the population. Yeah. A population with very few males and a lot of females would grow much faster than than a population with a 50-50 sex ratio, and, and a 50-50 sex ratio is something we observe yeah. in, in most, most species with, with uh, separate sexes. So that's a very good example of how, how natural selection works at the level of individual benefits and not, not, for what, not what's good for the population. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, good. We had a couple more questions. Uh, why don't we take the lady here on the, the, the bottom right? Yes, uh, I, I'm sorry for being a little bit late. So I'm not sure if you touched them up on this already. But as you were talking about that altruism has been regarded as something that you initially you help your family and people nearby. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also as mentioned that with the dictator game, we can see that there still is a need or a desire to help people without, without any gains per se other than helping people. How come, I would love to hear your opinion, that some people are much more inclined to be altruistic and to go, they will seek to help, help out people they have nothing in common with on the other side of the world. Some people are the happiest when they just have the family and helping the people around them. And also, I guess this is a side question to this, that now with um, the society becoming global and with media, shouldn't that have increased altruism by diminishing the borders between people around around the world. People's behavior does vary in these, these games. Right? Yeah, I mean, so one thing Jonathan said before is that it's much more complicated in humans because it's not something that's necessarily genetically programmed. And so a lot of it has to do with, you know, who and what actions you see as you're growing up. Um, like I said, a lot of it has to do with imitations. So if you're um, not brought up uh, in a sort of, family that teaches you to be altruistic then you're less likely to have that behavior um yeah and people's behavior does vary in this dictator game i mean especially in things with like in the laboratory though a lot of that isn't necessarily about how altruistic the person is but how they understand the situation they've been put into because it's not a sort of everyday 
situation. And so the way that they think about what what kind of interaction am I having also um, can affect your behavior as well. Certainly one of the effects of globalization is that altruistic behavior is now much, much broader than it ever was before. I suppose you, you used to have to be altruistic in your family. But now, I mean, even especially in the UK, these giving what you can, 80,000 hours, there are these charities whose aim is to be altruistic, really, and donate huge amounts of resources to people that you never meet, you know, that are far, far away. Parochialism still exists. Yeah. I, think, I think it's a great question. You know, given, given what we know, which is not all that much, but it's more than we did, about where human altruism comes from, is there anything we can do? Are there any interventions we can target to try and make people more altruistic? Uh, you know, if, if you think that we have these evolved sort of parochial tribal instincts, you know, if, we, if you think that we are disposed to be most altruistic towards our kin and then, then perhaps next most altruistic towards people we recognize as being similar to us from the same cultural group as us, how can we get over that? Like, what can we do to try and structure people's environments in such a way that they're not as sensitive to these in-group, out-group distinctions, that they're not as tribal? Do they think of people in, in Africa, say, as being you know, equally worthy of uh, the basic needs being met as the people who live in the same town as them in the UK? Um, it's a difficult question. I, ju- I just hope, all I can say is I hope that in some way this research feeds into that and is in some way helpful. Yeah, so there's tons of interesting research on in-group versus out-group biases. I mean, there's a lot of experiments that, like, if you... Um, you know, flip a coin, and first half the people it comes up heads, and half the people it comes up tails, and you put them into groups based on that, and you're like, okay, you're the people where the coin came up heads, and you're the people where coin came up tails. They'll form in-group biases based on something as totally meaningless as that, and they'll cooperate much more with my, oh, this person got a heads on the coin uh, group <laughs> versus those people with the tails. I don't know about them. <laughs> uh, good. Uh, so there was another question here in the middle. Thank you. Earlier you were talking about the dictator game and how we still observe some people um, giving money despite the anonymous condition that they're in. Um, and as I understand it, a lot of the um, reputationalist, altruist people, people who say that altruism is just like trying to establish a good reputation, account for this by saying, you know, like people have these like emotional proximate causes that induce them to, you know, give. And because anonymity is such an unusual condition to be in, it's just the metabolic cost of just being always proximately motivated to be like giving in these situations means that people are built to just give. And the fact that they're in an out- or an anonymous state is just a mistake. Um, so they're just making a- it's another type of yeah, mistake. it's another type of mis- I'm wondering mistake, um, yeah. how how much credence do you give this argument? Do you find it compelling? Why or why not? Um, so. Not necessarily. I mean, I'm sure that has some something to do with the explanation of why uh, these people are giving in the dictator game. Um, although, as uh, Jonathan said, if you have people play these sorts of games multiple times, the sort of emotional uh, reaction disappears, and they sort of think about, okay, what's the rational thing to do, given what I actually really care about, and in these sort of dictator games, if you have the people uh, play o- over and over again, they do s- sort of start to give less, but it, it 
bottoms out at a certain level. Like, if you play it, like, ten times, you sort of give less for a while, but you're not willing to give nothing. Um, I mean, some people are willing to give nothing to the other person, but there are still people after playing the game several times where you would think they, they sort of have more rationally thought through the situation they're actually in. Um, they still do give money, and so it's less less clear that it's a, a sort of misfiring mm-hmm. in that, that kind of case. I'm not sure I like the, the language of kind of misfiring, big mistake hypothesis, because um, even if you think, well, from a, from a strict kind of Darwinian point of view, a lot of human altruism uh, is a mistake. You know, it doesn't promote our inclusive fitness. That's a mistake that itself has a, has a history um, and that can itself be a target of explanation for, for cultural evolution mm-hmm. and that is sustained by social norms and, and sustained by the way we expect each other to behave. So it's, um, it's only a mistake in a very restricted sense. You know, it's, in another sense, it's, it's something to be explained by a different kind of evolutionary process. Yeah, I mean, if we have, if we have cultural norms and, and uh, ways of, of copying behaviors of others, we, we have to look at the balance. What are the, in what situations do those behavioral or copying rules pay off? And what is, the, what is the proportion where they misfire, so to speak? It's, it's which part do we want to focus on? We can, we can say that these behavioral rules work very well on average. In most in most cases, they they do exactly the right thing, and then there's this small small part of the space where they where they where they go go wrong. But they are we can still say that they are good rules. So, uh, great. The lady in the bottom right here. Um, I wondered whether you had looked or anyone had looked at all at, at altruism between species that are non-human. Um, I'm thinking of things like uh, birds that gives, give humans gifts, um, different types of um, animals that work together, like um, orcas and dolphins, I think it is. Um, and recently I've seen a really lovely, fascinating little video of a parrot deciding that a couple of young cats were bored and taking a milk bottle off a, um, a milk bottle and fashioning it into a toy which it then gave to the kittens for them to play with I cannot understand why and I was fascinated why it should be should want to do that but I do think there's a lot going on at the non-human level that we haven't begun to tap I'm a complete non-specialist I work for one of the altruistic organizations <laughs> well I, I guess I mean the uh, Cooperation between species is already something that I think Darwin Darwin was considering as a potential problem to his logic. I mean, we have a lot of lot of very intimate symbiotic mutualistic relationships between between species, and of course, how how evolutionary biologists define genetic relatedness, genetic relatedness. Across species, it's not it's not possible. It's it's always in the technical sense going to be zero. So so we have to look for some direct benefits for the parties to how to that have to be there to keep these keep these uh, relationships evolutionarily stable. And I know there's, there's a lot of lot of examples uh, examples of of uh, vertebrates behaving altruistically. Towards individuals of another species, and I don't see any 
direct benefits <laughs> there. There, so I think uh, for an evolutionary biologist, they they are a they are a mystery. So they we have to we have to look for other like explanations than than biological than biological fitness for those for those yes. those cases. Right, and potentially culture. Right? That, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I entirely agree that. Um, all, the, all over the natural world, we find mutualistic cooperation across species, even in our own bodies. You know, with, with the, the gut flora in our in our gut, we, we cooperate with bacteria mutualistically. Even in our own cells, you can think of the, the mitochondria as originally beginning as a, as a symbiont of the cell. Uh, so symbiosis is everywhere, but these these cases of apparent altruism are much harder to explain. Um, but I, I think that culture is not a uniquely human thing. Cultural evolution is not a uniquely human thing. Uh, there's good reason to think cultures exist in, in dolphins and whales and chimpanzees of a sort. And if there's culture of a sort, you know, if there, there are different norms and practices, different groups uh, transmit down the generations through learning, then there's the possibility for cultural evolution and the possibility for the evolution of altruism uh, that is on a kind of long genetic leash, but that is mainly underpinned by cultural beliefs and values, just like we see in humans. Do you see more altruism in these sorts of, you know, cultural animal species? So, if I'm looking at chimpanzees and dolphins, <laughs> am I more likely to see altruism than if I'm looking at solitary? Animals? Well, if you're comparing it to ants, no. I mean, chimp- <laughs> chimpanzees are horrible. <laughs> I mean, they're really. They're really not nice to each other, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and not, not not at least altruism in the in the in the biological sense that there would be individuals giving up their their reproduction. We don't have dolphins or chimpanzees with a worker caste and a, and a and a queen and a king caste. They they are all reproductive individuals, so they are they are not altruists in the in the narrow sense that uh, that uh, evolutionary biology, how evolutionary biology defines the term, but they, they, they might display something that is altruism in the, in the psychological... I mean, the best examples of that biological altruism are, are cognitively simple. Uh, ants and amoebas, it just seems like it's good to not overthink it. <laughs> well, but then how do you explain humans, you know? We're altruistic so often, it just seems unusual that... Uh... Compared to chimpanzees, yes. I mean, compared to ants, no, not really. Yeah, okay, fair enough. We're a bit disappointing. <laughs> and of course, there's a, a fascinating story to tell that we're... It's still largely a speculative story about what, what happened to make us diverge from our common ancestor with the chimpanzees so that we became able to cooperate on, uh, on much larger scales and much more effectively than they can. And it's kind of what the last chapter of the book is about, I think. Cultural evolution is crucial in understanding what happened there. Well, I think on that note, we're almost out of time. Uh, that uh, humans uh, disappointing in comparison to ants, <laughs> but not but, uh, compared to chimps. Uh, yeah, better than the chimps. Yeah. But let me thank you all again for coming. Uh, this again was the Forum for European Philosophy. I hope you visit the website and download the podcast. And we hope to see you again next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>